And so what I'm going to do today, um, first I'm going to pray for us, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to read our whole section. Um, our, our, the story that we're looking at today covers um, two chapters, through eight, 18, chapter 18 of Genesis and, and chapter 19 of Genesis. And so we're not going to read that whole passage, but we're just going to kind of summarize some of those sections and then read a few of them as we progress um, through the text, um, as we talk about it. And so um, let me start us off again um, with prayer, and then we'll look at, at Genesis um, starting chapter 18. So let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father, again, we thank you. We praise you. God, we, we pray for our country right now. We ask for your mercy, um, God, in, in, our, in our families, in our community, in our churches, um, God, in our nation and, and across the world. Um, we know that there is nothing about us um, that would warrant um, your graciousness to us, God, but we, we call upon you because you are gracious, because you are good, because you are merciful, not because of anything in us, because of your character. Um, God, we ask that you would be merciful on, on uh, our nation, God, that, that you would um, cause this virus to be um, uh, defeated quickly, um, that, that people could get back to work, that they could provide for their families, and that their livelihoods would not be interrupted. Father, we, we trust that you um, want what's best for us, God. And so we ask in your mercy, not because of anything in us, but because of who you are and your goodness, we ask that you would have mercy on us. God, that you would um, keep people from getting sick, that you would, if people get sick, that that, that illness would not um, be serious. If it's serious, that they would have, um, be able to, to find um, appropriate medical help, God. If, if um, this has put people out of work, um, they've, they've lost jobs because of this, God, that you would help people to get back and, and find jobs quickly and, and be able to um, earn a living and provide for their families. Um, Father, in that you would protect um, the the people who are on the front lines of this thing. Um, that you would protect the the uh, doctors and nurses. That you would protect our first responders, um, God, and that you would continue to give them uh, encouragement um, during this time. And Father, that you would um, lead and guide our officials and and um, those who lead our country, God. That you would give them wisdom in all these things. That they would make um, choices that will. Um, mitigate um, this this pandemic um, and not exacerbate it. So, God, we thank you. Um, we trust that you um, will do all these things, God, uh, and we will give you all the praise And when we see those things come to fruition. We thank you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, like I said, if, if you are already in, um, uh, let me, uh, one more thing. Let me remind you, if you, if you came in a little bit late and you didn't hear this, if you're joining with us from, uh, Zoom, um, w- there's been a lot of problems with hacking of, you know, which is super sad as, as churches and, and schools and, and groups are trying to deal with this. There are always people out there in, in the world who want to cause chaos and want to mess things up, even at a time of trial. And so we, uh, there's been some problems with hacking um, on on um, Zoom and people breaking into streams and and doing inappropriate things and saying inappropriate things. And so uh, what we're asking is if you join us through Zoom, um, then if you could just change your your handle, your title, your name on there to who you are. And so we'll see that and and know you, and then we have to admit you into the room. 
um, now uh, so that you can watch from there. If you don't know how to do that, if you're like, I mean, you're, if you're like me, I probably put my name in and couldn't figure out how to change it now if I wanted to. Um, you can always join us on, on Facebook. And so you can go over to the Pleasant Grove at College Street Facebook page. Uh, and and watch as it is streaming over there, uh, if that would be easier for you. And so right now, um, we start off in what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks. Um, we've been talking about this idea of how the gospel is not God's plan B, that the gospel has always been the way that God has worked, and that um, it is it is something that we have seen um, throughout history um, and throughout the scriptures. And so in the case of, even when we go back to the very beginning of the people of Israel in the life of Abraham, um, we see in Abraham's life glimpses of the gospel spread throughout his life. In fact, probably in no other place um, uh, more consistently do you see elements and, and glimpses and images, foreshadowings of the gospel, almost every single chapter as you go through the life of Abraham as God begins his people, um, that he will eventually bring um, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, through. And so we've been showing how different elements of that have progressed um, uh, throughout uh, throughout the story of Abraham. This week we get to um, another idea there. Um, and, and just like last week, we're going to skip over a little section. And it's not that we couldn't dig into that section and find um, gospel-rich material, but some of the things that we've already touched on. So at the beginning of, of chapter 18, um, what we notice is um, something strange happens. Um, Abraham is visited by these three visitors, all right? Um, these three um, men, except we realize very quickly that they are not just men, that it says the Lord came and visited with Abraham in that time. And so um, this would be what we would call, there's a theological term for it called a theophany. All right. This is a this is a, a time when God makes his presence known in a physical way, um, sort of like when we see uh, the burning bush uh, in in the, the Moses narrative or or when we see uh, the pillar of cloud and fire um, and the Shekinah glory of God descending on the temple at very place, various places in the scripture. This is a physical manifestation of, of the coming um, of God into the world. And so uh, we don't know exactly how to say it, but it seems to be the case that this is God in, in a, in a personal kind of, uh, 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 figure and, uh, with, with two angels who are there to, who are there with him. And so, uh, Abraham has an interaction with them. Um, and, and during this time, um, God tells Abraham, the specifics of how he is going to fulfill what he has already promised him, that he would have a son. And that son is going to be born within a year. And so if you remember the whole story of, of Sarah overhears that and she laughs about it because she is skeptical because she's uh, at this point well advanced in years and doesn't think that she would ever be able to have a child. Um, and then it ends up being the case that, that Isaac's name is, is when he is born, his name is Isaac means laughter. Um, and it's connected back to that idea that, that the, the scene is, is almost incredible, um, almost too much to believe that, that these two people um, who are approaching 100 years old have now um, had uh, a son together. And so, so as that, after that story happens, um, we get down to verse 16, and that's where we're going to sort of jump out and start going with our text. And so if you'll read along with me there in, in Genesis chapter 18, verse 16. So it says, then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? 
seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have what, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So, so as we come into this passage, let me make some sort of uh, pref, uh, preface the, the the discussion a little bit. And so, uh, the, we we talk about the word justification um, a lot when we come to the scriptures. And so, um, a, a technical kind of definition of justification, because we use that word oftentimes and we don't know exactly what it means, we mix it up with other words like redemption and atonement and things like that. Justification is a combination of two things. It is atonement and the imputation of righteousness. Now, again, even those terms, you might hear them and say, man, I don't even know what those things mean. What does it mean? What does atonement and the imputation of righteousness mean? Well, well, let me let me say it a different way. So to be right with God, we must not do evil and we must actively do good, right? We can't just not do bad. And we can't just do good and then do some bad too, right? We have to not do what is evil and positively do what is good. But the problem is, is we haven't, right? We've actually done the exact opposite of that. We have done evil and we have not done all the good that we should have done. So we talk about being, when we talk about being justified with God, that is being rightly aligned with God and brought back into relationship, we have to look at it as being twofold, okay? It addresses both of those two areas, both the sin that we have committed and the good that we have not done that we should have done. And so our sin on that side has to be paid for, right? It has to be, uh, there has to be a process of expiation, that happens there. In fact, more than that, expiation means the idea of, of paying for it in some way. It's connected with the idea of atonement. But there's more than that. It's not just that we have to pay for it. Um, our sin has to be propitiated, which is another big fancy word. Um, but that means that God has to be appeased in these things, that his wrath must be um, appeased because of our sin. And so we have to deal with our sin on one side, but we also have to do something about the fact that we have not been living the way God has called us to in terms of the good we were supposed to do. So that right doing needs to be credited to us with all the good deeds and all the good life um, that we never did in the first place, right? We have to pay for sin, atonement, and we have to be filled with righteousness, which is imputation. We can't do either on our own. And that's the exact problem that we find ourselves in. We need somebody, since we can't do it on our own, we need somebody to do that for us. We need a substitute. We need a substitute to atone for us, and we need a substitute to impute to us that righteousness. And so what we find out is, and that's the, the topic that we're talking about in, in this section of Abraham's story, is the glimpse of the gospel that we get to see in this passage is the concept of substitution. 
And both of those ideas are connected to that. And what we see in this passage coming up as we continue starting in verse 22 is we see that God allows substitution, that God allows someone to substitute for us, which is super important. So look at verse 22. It says, so the men turned from there and went down towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Remember, we, we heard this a couple of weeks ago. Abraham's nephew Lot is now living down among these people. And so he's worried for them because God has said, I'm going to go down and destroy these cities if it turns out that they're as bad as I hear they are. And so it says in verse 24, it says, suppose there are 50 righteous people within the city. Will, they, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in that city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. That's to say 45. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if there are 45 there. And again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. So, so what we find is this. Now, in a sense, um, the idea of, of substitution is, is very common, especially in the ancient world because of the idea of sacrifice, right? And so sometimes a sacrifice was, was more of a gift or an appeasement, um, to, to the deity that they were sacrificing to. But other times it did carry the idea of being a substitute right? A substitute person that was, um, or thing that was killed in place of, of, of others. Um, that's the impression that we get in the old Testament sacrificial system, right? But even then, even when there is that substitute of an animal for the life of the human, we notice something else in the old Testament text. Very quickly, we start getting the hint, um, even after God has commanded these things that they in some way aren't good enough that even that sacrifice is not going to be enough to forgive the people of their sin, right? To cleanse them from their sin. But interestingly, when we look at this, we're really not looking at, at the idea of a substitution for, for, uh, for sin, okay? What we're actually doing is looking at a kind of substitution uh, for righteousness, okay? Not for someone who is dying, in our place, but we're looking for someone who could live in our place in a way. The idea that is put out here is, is this question that, 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 uh, Abraham is asking of God is, is it possible for someone else's righteousness 
to be substituted for mine or somebody else's. Could someone, or as we kind of saw, a number of people have enough righteousness somehow that their righteousness would cover and substitute for another group of people? Or could it be given, could their righteousness somehow be given to other people so that those people would be saved? And so the first thing that we should notice is the fact that God says yes, that God will allow a substitute to take place. Another person's righteousness can substitute for some people, right? And we should pause right there and and consider what a blessing that is and praise God for that because it's not something that is necessarily something that God would have to do for us, right? Um, God doesn't have to allow a substitute. In fact, most cases in our justice systems, a substitute would never be allowed, right? If you committed a crime and a friend or a family member showed up and said, hey, I want to take the punishment for them um, so that they don't have to go through this, the court system wouldn't let you do that, right? They wouldn't say, oh, well, that's fine, and you can go to jail and they can stay out. They wouldn't do that. They would not allow a substitute because they would say, no, you have to um, suffer the punishment for the crime that you've committed. And yet in this incident, um, we see that God is saying, no, I will allow that. I, if, if there are enough good people in this town, enough righteous people in this town, that I will let their righteousness cover and substitute for the righteous that the other, the righteousness that the other people lack. Incidentally, that's still a controversial subject in ethics and in theology, right? There are lots of folks, even in the Christian world, some in the Christian world anyway, who think that that is impossible, uh, that that doesn't make sense, that there's no way that righteousness could be imputed to somebody and counted as if they were righteous themselves. Um, but God here, I think, is affirming that possibility. And so then this is what happens, and, 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 and maybe it's the question that we would come up to um, with if we were in this situation. If substitution is a thing, and God says it is, then our next question would probably be like Abraham's next question. What's the math on that, God? Like, what is the ratio of righteous person to unrighteous person? How do, how do we fix that, right? And so what we saw in the story is what? Abraham asked God, if there are 50 people in that town who are righteous, will you spare the rest of the people because of those 50? And God says he will. And so at least we have this idea of 50 to whatever the number is in that town. But then what happens in the story is he continues to um, progress down. Well, what if there's 45, 40, 30, 20, 10? It's almost like a reverse auction going on, right? Uh, but the outcome of the story points us to something, and it's, and it's a dark reality. Because what we find is that in the end, God does destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, which indicates to us that no suitable substitute is found to keep the city from being destroyed. And so that's the next idea that we, that we notice in this passage, that God will accept a substitute, but the problem is that there's no substitute to be found. It may be in, I don't know when the last time you read chapter 19 of the book of Genesis, but but chapter 19 has two of the most outrageous stories that we find in all the Old Testament. The first one functions in two ways. First off, it shows um, not only Lot's rescue, but it, but it functions to show the wickedness of the city of Sodom um, and, and how they deserve judgment. And so if you remember, 
um, the, the two angels uh, who were there with God and Abraham, they go down to the city of Sodom and they go to visit Lot. Um, uh, they're in the town square and Lot comes out and hospitably welcomes them into his own home, which was, which was considered a normal thing to do. And we noticed that no one else in the town would do that, which already tells you a little bit about their character. But a mob forms, and and without going into too many details, that mob comes and attempts to not only assault, but to violate um, those two angels. And so the only way they are able to escape that situation is, is because they are the, the mob is supernaturally struck blind um, and stopped, and Lot is commanded at that point to leave the city immediately, right, with anybody that is dear to him, because God is going to destroy um, this city of Sodom for its wickedness, right? And that wickedness is on display in this, in this act that is taking place. Um, but we also notice something else, I think, um, that is, that is implied in the story. There's not really a whole lot of particular righteousness found in Lot and his family. So remember that it almost seems to me like that conversation between God and Abraham, as it went 50, 40, 30, 10, whatever, that the question would maybe go on past that, right? Well, what if there's only five people in this town? What if there's only two? What if there's only one, right? And the, and the reality is, is that Lot is not a person of righteousness to the point that he can be a substitute for anybody else. Neither are his, uh, his wife, neither are his daughters. Um, God doesn't end up sparing the city because no righteous person is found. Maybe Lot is more righteous than the other people in in Sodom, right? Certainly he is shown to be hospitable when other people were there to try to attack. Um, but we also get some clues that maybe maybe uh, Lot is not um, and his family are not particularly um, righteous, right? And so, for example, when Lot um, is told to leave the city, um, for one, he hesitates. And then when he goes and warns his future sons-in-law of God's impending judgment, the Bible tells us that they didn't really take him seriously. And some interpreters have suggested that maybe that's because Lot had not lived a life um, that would have made people think he was particularly interested in the things of God, that he took things particularly seriously. And so when he comes and says, God has told me these things, nobody takes him um, at his word. Lot's wife is immortalized, right? Um, as, as a woman who is, is at least disobedient and probably um, materialistic and worldly as she looks back um, on the city when it is being destroyed after being commanded not to and and is turned to a pillar of salt. And then Lot's daughters um, commit what is the second outrageous event that takes place in Genesis chapter 19. A, a, an act so grossly sinful that it would have been looked down probably by, by any culture of the time, maybe even including the Sodomites, okay? And so they do something that is is in some ways, even more wicked um, than than what um, the Sodomites had had practiced, right? And so, so what we've noticed is this: God is not, or Lot is not spared because he is righteous. He certainly, and he certainly doesn't have enough righteousness that he could save anybody else because of of his his righteousness. He could never be somebody's substitute. No, we're told in in the text why. God spared Lot. And it says in Genesis 19, verse 16, 
It says, but Lot lingered. So the men, the angels seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. We see why Lot was spared. God's judgment is coming. And at the end of the day, there is no adequate substitute found. And Lot's life is saved only because God is merciful to him. God spares him miraculously. But that substitution, um, that, that, that person or persons whose, whose righteousness could be substituted and save the, the, the rest of the people were left without that person. That person is not found in this text. And so again, the passage leaves us wondering, could there be a substitute? God has said that's something that he will allow, but could there be someone whose righteousness could cover us and preserve us from judgment? So we've already talked about faith being credited, reckoned, accounted to us as righteousness, that when we believe that God credits that to our account as rightness with him. But what we realize when we get to a passage like this is that that righteousness doesn't appear out of a void, right? That righteousness has to come from somewhere or more to the point, it has to come from someone. It has a source, a source, in fact, that is outside of fallen man and his condition. So much so, so much outside of us that, that some theologians have dubbed it an alien righteousness. And what we glean from this passage is that as we see the horribleness of the things that happen in Genesis chapter 19, it is actually pointing us to the holiness of Jesus and the reality of the gospel itself. For mankind's sins, which, which we are all a part of, we need someone to substitute for us because we could not do these things on our own. And there is one who is to come who is the perfect substitute? One single person whose righteousness can cover over a world of sin. Jesus lives a perfect, sinless life, a life of real and complete righteousness, a righteousness that is substituted for our sinfulness, a righteousness that is imputed, right? That it is inputted, right? It is put within us and on us and it covers us. And so again, theologians call that the great exchange that we have given, we have substituted our sin to Christ and he's substituted his righteousness to us. Second Corinthians five says it like this, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus who is sinless becomes sin. We who are not righteous become righteous all because of this idea of substitution. That substitution is an essential piece of the gospel and we get a glimpse of it in this story. The reality that Jesus is not just our leader. He is not just our example. That Jesus is, in fact, 
our perfect substitute. And without that, we would be without hope. And that's exactly as, as we go through this series, that is the function of this series, right? It is to continue to push us back to the idea and make us recognize the truth is that um, Jesus and the gospel are where we find our rest. When we begin to, to doubt ourselves and when we, when we are stumbled uh, up by, by the, the junk of our lives and we think to ourselves, man, there's no way that God could love me. There's no way that God could accept me, that there's no way that God could have forgiven me. All of these elements of the gospel that we've talked about, God's election, God's grace, God's um, uh, stance of, of, of goodness to us, God's promises and covenant to us that he is going to keep the covenant himself even when we mess up. And now his substitution. All of these things point us to the reality that God has got us, that God is going to keep us, that God is going to save us, that God is the one who is doing all the work all across the spectrum. And that because these things are in God's hands and not in our hands, that they are in his power and not in our weakness, that they are in his control and not in our um, lack of control, that we can trust and that we can have peace and assurance that we belong to God and that he has us. We're going to have a time of prayer. Uh, and then Marlon's going to come up and, and lead us in a song that is a new song for us. Um, but it is, it is an older song. Um, it's a song from, from the 1860s. Um, but the message of it is, is a perfect match for what we're talking about here. The fact that we are staking our life and not only our life, but our eternity on someone else. Another person who has become the perfect substitute for us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer um, and ask him to work these things in our hearts, to give us assurance of these things um, so that we can know him and, and um, have an assurance uh, of who we are in Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we, uh, we confess that there is nothing good in us, God, that is, that is apart from you. That if we were, um, God, if we had to sustain ourselves for one second, um, we would be lost. We would be destroyed. We would be without hope. God, the only reason, um, that we are or have or do anything is because of your goodness and grace working in us. Um, you have been faithful, God. You have made the decision. You have done the work. Um, you have lived a life in our place, uh, Jesus. You have done everything that was necessary because you were a good and loving and gracious God. And so, God, help us to rest in those things. God, help us to rest in the goodness and grace that we have in Jesus Christ. Help us to remember that on our best day, that God sees only Jesus in our lives. And that on our worst day, that God sees only Jesus in our lives. That he has substituted, he has died in our place, and that he has lived in our place, and that we stand in your presence, in your family, as your forgiven and accepted children because of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. God, help us to 
God, plant that truth in our hearts, help it to grow and to give us the confidence and the boldness um, to live lives that honor you and that go out into the world and share Jesus Christ. We thank you. We praise you, God. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. Upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. On the tears which I have shed, not on the sorrows I have known, another's tears, another's griefs, on these I rest, on these alone. Oh, Jesus, Son of God, I build on what thy cross has done for me. There both my life and death I read my guilt and pardon there I see there I see Lord I believe oh deal with me as one who has thy word believed I take the gift Lord, look on me as one who has thy gift received. Oh, Jesus, Son of God, I feel on what thy cross has done for me. There, both my life and death, I read my guilt and pardon, there I see. There I see Upon a life I have not lived Upon a death I did not die Another's life, another's death I stake my whole eternity Son of God, I build on what thy cross has done for me. There both my life and death, I read my guilt and pardon, there I see. Oh, Jesus, Son of God, I build on what thy cross has done.
thanks again for joining us today. Um, glad you could all um, be here. And um, it's an odd week, right? Um, it's, it's probably the first Easter that many of us have ever experienced like this. Um, but uh, we um, continue to pray. We continue to ask God to to meet us uh, where we're at and the difficulty um, that we find ourselves in. So thanks again for for joining us. I encourage you to keep on being a part of this. Um, it, it, it's important, and so so join us in this time. Um, also, if you're not following along um, all this week, I'll be um, doing um, daily. Uh, prayer times um, on the the hours of the liturgical prayer um, calendar and or liturgical hours of prayer. And if you want to follow us on Pleasant Grove at College Street and Facebook, um, you can follow along with those if those would be an encouragement and a help to you. Um, hear this benediction as we as we depart. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn His face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week. Thank <laughs> you.